what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This episode of the Caregiver Community is sponsored by Pace at Home. During this uncertain time, Pace at Home is enrolling participants who wish to continue to remain at home. Partnering with families, Pace at Home provides caring medical support for all of our program's participants. Visit us on our website or give us a call at 828-468-3980 to talk with a representative that can discuss with you the Pace at Home all-inclusive medical approach. Pace at Home is the champion for seniors wishing to remain in their community. Welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents as well as caring for ourselves. I am Frances Hall, founder and executive director of ACAP Community, Adult Children of Aging Parents. There are now an estimated 20 million adult children in the United States and many more millions worldwide who are caring for aging parents and are concerned about their own life as they age. In this podcast, we are talking about the alphabet soup of caring for an aging adult, all those abbreviations and terms that we often encounter and are completely confused by as we care for our aging loved ones. I am talking with two seasoned elder care professionals today. Excuse me. Jill Lilly has been involved with various senior living communities for the past 20 years and with ACAP over the past six. She has held the position of marketing director in two communities and has worked most recently as a contract worker, helping struggling communities achieve their occupancy goals. In the course of her professional and volunteer work, Jill has interacted with lots of seniors and their adult children, so truly understands their needs. She also understood the value of ACAP when she first heard about it in 2013. Jill is the reason ACAP Center County in State College, Pennsylvania exists, and she is the co-coordinator of the chapter. Hi, Jill. Good to see you today. Vince Bartlemé lives in Hickory, North Carolina, the home of the first ACAP chapter. He brings 25 years of healthcare experience to his role as the current ACAP Hickory Foothills chapter co-coordinator. Vince has served in operational roles for home healthcare agencies, and he was the director of social services for residents and families at a 170-bed skilled nursing facility as well as being the vice president of program development for several hospice and palliative care providers in the Hickory, North Carolina area. I am delighted that both of us today. Okay. There are so many details involved with caring for an older adult. And on top of everything, sometimes it just seems like there's a whole new language that we need to be able to speak as caregivers. I suspect I am not the only one who had a huge learning curve when it comes to resources and jargon, so let's talk about some of the most common terms. There are lots of places we could start, but let's start with the loved one who wants to stay at home but needs more help from the family than the family can 
can offer. I suspect that that's a pretty common scenario. At home, there can be everything from companion services to round-the-clock medical attention and everything in between. Jill, how about talking a little, please, about some terms that we may hear in the basic home care situation? Thank you. Um, Thanks uh, for all of these folks that are joining us today. Um, I want to give you a, a, a a few terms that you might hear about in um, basic a basic home care situation. So let's start out with home care agencies, also called HCAs. They provide non-skilled services to individuals in their home or other independent living location. Uh, they provide non-medical services such as housekeeping, food preparation, running errands, companionship, or um, adult sitting service. They also help with ADLs, another one of those alphabet soup acronyms. ADLs stand for activities of daily living. And those activities include eating, bathing, dressing, incontinence care, toileting, transferring and mobility assistance. These non-medical home care agencies are not covered by most insurance and are typically private pay, which means you pay out of pocket. There are exceptions to this, uh, one of which is Medicaid. However, Medicaid's home care services are different in every state and within each state, the home care benefits depend on the type of Medicaid program you're enrolled in. Another exception could be LTC, which stands for long-term care insurance. Uh, You need to read that fine print, but it is possible that if you're unable to do at least two activities of daily living, that your long-term care insurance uh, could kick in. In addition to private pay and Medicaid, there are programs available through block grant funding, another term you should be aware of. This is a large lump of money granted um, by the federal government to the state governments with guidance and provisions as to the way the money can be used. For example, in Pennsylvania, this money along with Pennsylvania lottery proceeds are used to fund home and community services to individuals who don't qualify for aging waiver services. Eligibility for block grant funding is determined by local area on aging in the county where the individual resides. Uh, Let's take a look at one more common term, um, which is PACE. PACE, P-A-C-E, stands for Programs of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. PACE is a joint federal and state Medicare and Medicaid program for older adults over the age of 55 that helps with medical costs for some people with limited income and resources. It provides medical and social services for people with significant needs who want to continue living at home. The program provides community-based care and services to people who would otherwise need a nursing home level of care. The care is quite comprehensive with a focus on preventative um, care. PACE was created as a way to provide elders, their families, caregivers, and professional health care providers flexibility to meet your health care needs and to help you continue living in the community. It provides an alternative to moving into a congregant um, living community. PACE provides all the care and services covered by Medicare and Medicaid 
as authorized by a multidisciplinary team, as well as additionally medically necessary care and services not covered by Medicare or Medicaid. That might include physicians, prescription drugs, transportation, home care, checkups, hospital visits, and even nursing home stays when necessary. With PACE, your ability to pay will never keep you from getting the care that you need. Their requirements are that you must be 55 years of age or older, you must live in a service area, and you are certified by the state where you live as meeting the need for nursing home level of care, and you're able to live safely in the community when you join with the help of PACE services. PACE uses both Medicare and Medicaid funds to cover all your medically necessary care and services, and you can have either Medicare, Medicaid, or both to join PACE. Most people are dually eligible. So that um, gives you a little bit of uh, overview of those um, types of in-home care that you might be able to access. Wow, and you've covered a lot of ground just in that. Let me let me ask a couple of questions. The pace is pace in every community or just larger communities? And is that nationwide? It is a national program, but it does vary um, with each state. And you do it you do have to live within a service area, and most of those service areas are in the bigger cities. So, um, not all, but in general. Um, you'll find that uh, they match up with the larger cities. And it does give people an opportunity uh, to be able to stay in their own home instead of having to go into some other type of facility. Right. We, in fact, we have one in our area um, and it's a, it's a marvelous program. Um, So, so basically to find out, they, if they if they have a pace in their area, they could contact any of the, um, I guess, I'm thinking particularly the Area Agency on Aging. Right. That would be a good, good place to go for that. Yes. And as a matter of fact, <laughs> I depend on the um, Office of Aging uh, as a resource for almost anything dealing with, with seniors. Um, if they don't have an answer for you, they can they can get it. So, right, sort of a one stop shop. Exactly. If you have a question, go there. And yes. they can answer, or if they can't answer, they can they can tell you who. Yes. Who to go to. Okay. Here in here where I live, um, there is no uh, servicing area, so um, people can access the um, uh, reduced drug cost, but they don't have access to. Um, say, a daycare that they could attend or um, a physician's uh, services. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And Jill, you you talked about ADLs, and we hear a lot about ADLs. Um, will you go through that one more time, just what the what those ADL, ADLs are? Yes. Um, they are eating, bathing, Dressing, incontinence care, toileting, and then transferring and mobility assistance um, are often um, lumped together. But those are the those are the main um, activities of daily living that 
you'll see ADLs used as a guide for many, many different things from um, insurance to um, where exactly you might fit in the in the continuum of care. Right, right. And and that basically means that if someone is not able to do two or more of those, that's when it it's pretty clear that they need some additional help. Right. Right. Okay. 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 That is a great overview. Thank you. Okay. So but all of these services are different from when someone comes into the home and provides actual medical attention. Jill, what you've talked about is non-medical. Vince, will you talk some about home health care, meaning when someone comes into the home um, to actually provide some medical care or maybe even in a facility? Yes, I sure will, and, and thank you for the invitation to participate today. Um, home health, and, and again, home health is different than home care. Home health is a skilled and certified need. This is typically ordered by a physician, and the recipient of a skilled certified home health is generally considered homebound, so they would have a homebound status. What a homebound status refers to is an individual who experiences a very taxing effort to be able to get dressed, go out, get in a car, and go somewhere. So the, the physician would determine the homebound status and then order whatever services a skilled certified home health provider would give. That can include skilled nursing. That can include physical therapy or you might hear it PT, you could hear that the person who is gonna provide PT is a PTA or physical therapy assistant. You have occupational therapists or OTs, and again, their assistant would be an OTA. Speech difficulties or some swallowing difficulties post-stroke. So the physician may order a speech therapist to come in. And you would hear that referred to as ST. And this person would come in, any speech disorders, any possible swallowing difficulties, they would work with that. Some patients of a skilled certified home health need could possibly, they might have some issues at home, some social issues. So they can send in a certified social worker to help the patient and family work through those issues. It used to be fairly common that a certified nursing assistant or a CNA would come in and provide assistance with ADLs, which Jill spoke about. Um, the home health agencies aren't providing that as much, but that is something that you can always ask for. And with all these skilled services, Medicare Part A will cover those and they generally cover those at 100%, so there's no out-of-pocket expense for the, the patient or the family. Okay, so, so Vince, I think what you are saying is that an order from a doctor, just like a, just like a prescription, that an order from a doctor is really sort of the starting point for getting any kind of medical 
intervention in the home, the occupational therapy or the physical therapy or any of that. Is that right? Yes, with a skilled certified home health, you will always need a physician's order that could be directly from your, your um, provider, your primary care provider, or if you've been in a rehab unit, a skilled nursing facility, then the doctor there would write that order for continued care at home. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, and and you just you just talked about rehab, <laughs> um, and often that happens after a, ho- a after a hospitalization. So a lot of times, this um, somebody potentially could be at it's almost like it's almost like levels or a process sometimes, um, isn't it? That that somebody is at home and they're fine. And then they need a little bit of help. They need somebody just to come in and help with some cleaning, for example, or transporting or whatever. And then they kind of move sometimes into needing some home health care. Um, sometimes that home health care has been prompted by being in a hospital. Um, but, but Vince, being in a hospital, there can be all kinds of terms there. Um, that's not a, um, a jargon-free zone either. Uh, can you talk a little about some of, some of the uh, terms that people may encounter in a hospital? I'd be happy to. Hospital visits can be very, very tricky. Um, fortunately, most of us visit them rarely, but there are some things you have to know. You know, first of all, it's usually a trauma or an acute need that you go into the hospital. Once you get there, they're going to do an assessment after you've sat in the lobby for many hours, (laughs) unless your acute situation is is serious, and then they generally see you pretty quickly. Um, They will observe you for a while. They could admit you, but you need to be very knowledgeable and you need to be very clear with the nurse or the doctor that you're dealing with, whether or not this is gonna be just an observation stay or whether it will be an inpatient stay. And the reason for that is any post-acute needs may require that actual inpatient admission. So you go in for observation for a day or two, that may not qualify you for some of the benefits you could receive under your Medicare or your insurance. So you, they could be, somebody could be in a hospital for a couple of days under uh, observation. Would that still be that they would be in the emergency department or could they potentially be in a room or do you know, could they be in a room and still be there under observation? Not formally admitted. They could, in fact, be in a room under observation. The way hospitals are paid through Medicare in their bundling services, um, it just depends on what your needs are that they may hold you for observation. Thank you. That's really important because that's a bit of a change in recent years, I think. Um, okay, so so families need to just ask, am I here or is my loved one here under observation or have they been admitted? And 
Yeah, so, yes. so that they can access other services. Yes, and they need to be very clear on that. Um, like I said, Medicare looks at different situations differently. And especially if you're on a Medicare Advantage plan, they look at that in an entire different dimension. So be very clear, be very clear on that. Okay. You generally will not see your own primary care physician. You'll be assigned a hospitalist while at the hospital. And they don't know your situation as well as your primary care physician. So you need to make sure that, that you're either admitted or not. So you know what the next step will be. And so it, knowing that um, hospitalists take care of most inpatient, in-hospital patient um, situations, then is it okay for the family or the, or the patient to say, I want to be sure that you are connecting with my doctor because they have my records? Oh, yes. The, the more communication, the better. And it, it would always behoove you to at least talk to the charge nurse on the unit that they get in contact with the primary care physician so that continuum of care flows smoothly. Good, good. Now, what about this? I, I have heard something about this three-day rule with Medicare. Can you talk a little about that, explain that? Typically, when a Medicare recipient or any insurance recipient is admitted to the hospital and they are there for 72 hours, they're entitled to some post-acute care that could be done in a skilled nursing facility. Some hospitals still have what they refer to as a step-down unit or a swing bed unit. So so let's say that the person falls and breaks a hip and they go to the hospital and let's say that they're actually admitted, which they typically would be if they have to do surgery to repair a broken hip. After that person recovers from their surgery and the physician deems them appropriate for some rehab, they could very possibly keep them in their own hospital in a different unit referred to as a step-down unit or a swing bed unit. So this, this unit is used for the person to go in and get physical therapy so that they can strengthen their muscles again and overcome the, the challenges they have with that broken hip. They offer a step-down unit or a swing bed unit, then they would refer you out to a skilled nursing facility or rehab, they call it. Again, Skilled nursing facilities are skilled and they are certified to provide those services, which Medicare and any other insurances would pay for. But it's important that you have that three day or 72 hour stay to be able to qualify for that post acute unit. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So they will do some rehab in the hospital, but sometimes there is need for more rehab that can be done than can be done in the hospital. Jill, this is sort of where you have lived is with rehab and specifically with long-term care facilities, long-term care situations. Um, will you talk a little about those situations? Um, Vince has covered a lot about rehab, but will you talk more about uh, rehab, but, but most especially the long-term care? 
Sure, Francis. Um, often folks are discharged from the hospital and go into a rehab hospital until they get their strength back. And rehab, <clears throat> excuse me, rehab hospitals focus on treating people recovering from debilitating injuries, illness, surgeries, and chronic um, medical conditions. Their focus really is to get their patients back to IL, or what is known as independent living. It's also possible that um, a patient may be discharged to a long-term care facility if they are no longer safe to live at home. So um, what are some of these facilities? Uh, first, there are um, uh, personal care homes. Uh, they're licensed by the state and personal care homes are residences that provide seniors support with ADLs, activities of daily living, plus possibly help with housekeeping, medication management, laundry, shopping, meal, meal prep preparation, etc. Um, their services vary, but generally it's for seniors who do not need um, a higher level of support that you would find in a nursing home. Personal care homes are not reimbursed by Medicaid, so are generally private pay or possibly covered by VA if you're uh, a vet. Um, the, uh, the next um, step or, or level would be assisted living. And assisted living is uh, known as AL. I still, I still remember when I first got into this business and all these acronyms were flying around. I had ADLs and ALs and SNF, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, and I was totally be bewildered, but um, uh, eventually sorted things out. So anyway. <laughs> and that's why we are doing this particular podcast, right? So right. everybody kind of levels the playing field and understands the difference in an AL and an ADL. <laughs> right, right. So AL is a housing option for seniors who cannot live independently and need help with medications and or some activities of daily living, um, such as bathing, eating, dressing, etc. cetera. Uh, then there are skilled nursing facilities, and those are, um, the acronym there is SNF, S-N-F which is a step up in care from assisted living. Skilled nursing care is a high level of medical care that must be provided under the direct supervision of licensed health professionals, such as a registered nurse, a speech occupational or physical therapist. Um, and it, it, the care provided in any setting for any duration must be ordered by a doctor, as uh, Vince had mentioned to have it covered by uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, VA, or private health insurance. And finally, there are communities that specialize in memory care for individuals with Alzheimer's or other dementia. So you have all those um, levels of care. And then you have um, a CCRC. A CCRC uh, stands for Continuing Care Retirement Community. And it typically encompasses all of these levels of living from independent living to skilled care. Although um, not all of them have that specialized memory care, but many do. A more recent term for CCRCs is 
uh, called a life plan community. But the idea of a CCRC is to enter into the community while you're still able to live independently, to enjoy a very carefree and active uh, lifestyle with the whole package of amenities included, knowing that if you would need future care, such as assisted living or skilled nursing care, it is right on campus. So that while your care may change, your address doesn't. Um, and I, um, I think uh, another term that pops up when you're talking about all these different facilities and communities um, is the term ombudsman. An ombudsman is a person who investigates, reports on, and helps settle complaints. And they serve as an advocate for patients. Every state in, uh, is required to have an ombudsman program, and it is uh, a free service. I remember, yeah, I remember when my mother was in a nursing home that there was a, um, a, a sign, a flyer, or whatever, on a bulletin board that had the, the, as I remember, the name and the telephone number for the state's ombudsman and was saying, you know, if you have any concerns, this is the person to to go to. Right, right. It's an, yeah. it's an odd term. It's an, an odd, odd name, I think, but um, uh, it is, they do a great service, really. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, Jill, with your experience with long-term care facilities and CCRCs or, or now life plan communities, I have to get that in my head. Um. I, I know that I know what I did with my mother as my mother was aging, and that I began way before we needed the help. I, I began to scout out what is in the area that that I thought made some sense and may may be somewhere that if she needed to be in a facility that this that this one or these several would be the ones that I would probably try to contact. Will you will you talk a little about that process? Is that or, or let me just say this is would you recommend with your experience would you recommend that either individuals we who are aging um, or families begin to look at the facilities in their community so that if they get into a hospital, uh, Vince, you talked about being in a hospital. I know that I have heard horror stories of someone who's getting ready to come out of a hospital. They really don't need rehab, but they are not able to go home. And so in a matter of a very few short days, some really critical decisions have to be made. How is the best way to do that? Uh, that is the beauty, really, that I see of a CCRC in that you've made your plan. You know where you're going if you need future care. Um, and typically, it's, it's um, a high quality of, of care. And uh, so you you basically covered all your bases for the future. Um, one of the um, uh, most common 
misconceptions for folks is that their um, long-term care or nursing home care is covered fully by Medicare. And I'm always counseling people to um, let them know that while there is some care that's provided, it's limited. And it is contingent on being an inpatient in the hospital for at least a three-day stay before Medicare would kick in. And then it is only for a period of time called a benefit period. And a benefit period begins on the day you start getting inpatient hospital or SNF, <laughs> and you can get up to 100 days of um, uh, skilled nursing care SNF coverage in a benefit period. So um, there's no limit to the number of benefit periods you can have. However, you have to have uh, a three-day qualifying hospital stay each time to meet the Medicare requirements. So um, it's a bit of an eye opener for a lot of folks who think they don't um, they they don't understand um, that Medicare is really not the end all for coverage. <laughs> that you really you really need to to do your homework and 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 plan ahead. Right. I, I will say one other thing that um, uh, if you were going into a CCRC, you have to be able to live independently. So you have to be proactive. Um, you can't wait until you need um, assisted living or skilled nursing care um, to, to move in there. So um, it's important that you plan ahead um, instead of waiting to the last minute where you may end up going someplace that you really don't want to be, but that's the only place that has a bed available. Right. Right. Absolutely. Vince. Yeah. I didn't hear you. Well, Vince, I, I know that you have a lot of experience in residential settings also. What's your take on how is the best way to go about this? If, if a loved one is, is getting ready to come out of the hospital and needs more than what they can get at home. Well, first of all, let me just expand on a, another idea that Jill shared. Um, people do they do have a benefit of 100 days in a skilled nursing facility. Um, and when they hear that 100 days, they think, oh, yeah, that, that's going to be great. You know, I've got this big, long ride. <laughs> when, in fact, um, it generally, you get much less than that. And the first 20 days, you have to be careful. The first 20 days are covered at 100%. Starting on day 21 of that stay, you will be liable for 20% of that. So you would want to make sure that you have uh, whatever Medicare plans to uh, substantiate that 20%. Well, I, I want to move my mom into your assisted living. And so how does Medicare pay for that? Well, they don't because assisted living is not a certified program. It is um, only pays for certified programs ordered by physicians in a nursing home or in the hospital. Okay. Okay. So 
So the bottom line is sort of sort of what Jill is saying that before you need it, plan. Is that is that kind of the common theme that I'm hearing from both of you seasoned professionals? Yes. And okay. and actually that's where I saw the benefit of ACAP because I did talk to so many um seniors and with their adult children who waited too long before making any kind of a decision. And um, ACAP provides that information to um, to them so that they can make a good decision. And we have to get over this hurdle that, you know, we hear in the United States all the time. Oh, I'm never going to take grandma to the, to the rest home. We, we need to get over that. And we need to understand that there are going to be acute episodes where she may need it at least temporarily. And there's all kinds of out there on the internet with friends. As Jill said, ACAP, do some research, learn a little bit about what an assisted living is, what a skilled facility is. And, and there's all kinds of government websites that you can go to and look at how well they're rated in several different categories. So do some research just in case you need it. That's a really good point. Vince, can you talk about some of those websites? There's one.gov, right? Yes, medicare.gov uh, gives you the chance to look at skilled nursing facilities, hospitals, even, even primary care doctors. So in a nursing home situation, let's say your loved one has fallen and break, broke a hip, they're now in the hospital. And the social worker or discharge planner is talking to you about the next step would be rehab. So you need to go on medicare.gov and there's a place called nursing home compare. And you can pull up all the nursing homes in your area. You can even do a side-by-side -side comparison, but you can read the reviews and you can see the ratings that the Center for Medicare Services has given them through all their audits and inspections. And in the, state of North, in the state of North Carolina for assisted living or family care homes, the state has a website that you can go in to compare and get um, survey results on each one. And so potentially other states would have that also, that not only the Medicare.gov, but also the state may have their own website of, uh, that would compare, that would give information about the SNFs and, and ALs and all of that? Yes, they should. Usually the departments of health um, on the state level will give, give people those opportunities. Okay, good. Good to know. Good to know. Vince, there's another place, if I can call it that, there's another place that you have spent a lot of your career, and that is within the hospice and palliative care arena. Will you please talk about those and, and help people understand what those are? No, we've, we've got to get over this hurdle of not taking grandma or grandpa to the rest home. Another huge hurdle that we have in this country that we've made a lot of progress on in the last 10, 12 years is the H work, hospice. People think that when you sign up for hospice, that you are, your days are numbered, basically. 
very interesting, the studies that have been done through the federal government and Center for Medicare Services, through the National Hospice and Palliative Care Association, that the earlier a person comes into the hospice program when they have a terminal diagnosis, that their, their lifespan generally increased. Typically, when a doctor feels like a, a patient is ready for hospice, they look at it through the lens of having six months or less. That doesn't mean that's going to happen that way. Sometimes, statistically speaking, an average length of stay or a mean length of stay could be seven days because people wait so late to get signed up. But many times people will go through different benefit periods. They're, they're still showing a decline after six months, so they sign them up again. Many providers of hospice services are now changing their names, so it sounds a little more But it's, it's actually providing comfort care. It's actually providing quality for those days that a patient has left. And many times the, the medical director for the hospice will start taking these people off some of their meds that they really don't need anymore with a six month or less diagnosis. The people actually start to rebound and do a little better without them. So, um, you know, hospice is not a scary thing. It's really a very good quality care service. There's another word that is used in the hospice circles, and that's palliative. Most people don't even know how to spell that, much less say it. But palliative is sort of like the little transition period that you can start to begin to go through before going into hospice care. You may have had some surgery that they're having a difficult time with pain control. So you can get palliative care involved to palliate some of those symptoms, to help with a specialized medicine regimen and just extra help for your primary care physician. Um, this Medicare benefit usually pays for all of this. So generally there's no out-of-pocket expense for hospice or pain. Yes, I, I, I know several people who have gone into, um, have taken advantage of palliative care uh, services as well as hospice care, and were delighted that, that, their, that their Medicare picked up all of that, or their insurance picked up all of that, that there was no cost to them at all. Um, and and I, Vince, you were talking about that... Um, that people sometimes live longer than originally anticipated. I'm, and I'm putting that in quotes because, of course, nobody ever knows uh, how much, you know, when, when our time is, is ending here on Earth. Um, but my husband was a hospice chaplain. Has, uh, and in fact, Vince, you and, and Bill worked together. And there were numerous people who, as he called it, graduated from hospice. That <laughs> you know that they were in hospice and 
they got so much better that they didn't need hospice. So they 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 kind of got kicked out of hospice. I know that sounds kind of funny, but um, but that they truly got so much better because the service, the care in hospice is so excellent that they got to the point that they didn't need that any longer. So right. and begin yep. later. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so there are you know, as we are talking about all of this, there's another piece of this that, that I want to be sure that we that we talk about. And that is that we have some some uh, terms, geriat- geriatrician and geriatric specialist. Uh, but we also hear a gerontologist. Jill, will you talk a little about what the difference is in those two terms? Absolutely. Um A geriatrician, also known as a geriatric specialist, is a primary care doctor who has additional training in treating older adults. Uh, Those that are 65 years of age and older often have multiple or complex health issues that need special care and would benefit from the care of a geriatrician. So geriatric specialists or geriatricians geriatricians understand um, caregivers' roles and also work with family family members. Um, while they deal with the care of the elderly and their needs, gerontology is the study of aging and its impact on the population. So ger- gerontologists kind of perform a support function in uh, educating and understanding aging while geriatricians deal with the actual care of these older adults. Um, Gerontology kind of uses a multidisciplinary approach to study the problems that the elderly face and look for those big picture solutions while geriatricians deal with the issues that their patients may be facing day to day. So, So bottom line, the geriatrician or the geriatric specialist is a, is a physician. And the gerontologist is probably an academician or a practitioner. They're, they're the people who are doing the other end, the non-medical piece. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I look forward. I don't know that this is going to happen, but I look forward to there being as many geriatricians as there are pediatricians. It's just the other end of the age spectrum, but the but the needs of the older adult um, are very similar to a child in terms of it. Um, it's a very specialized. It's a very specialized discipline. Um, and Vince, I know sometimes, particularly with with mental health issues or even memory care issues, that sometimes psychiatrists will come into the picture or psychologists. What is the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Okay, so a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who is able to prescribe medications, and they do that in conjunction with providing psychotherapy, medical and pharmacy. Pharmacological interventions are often their focus. The or the psychologist holds a doctorate degree, but they're not a medical doctor. Most cannot prescribe medications. I believe some states they're allowed to, but rather they solely provide psychotherapy 
which may involve cognitive and behavioral intervention. Typically, it's the psychiatrist who would look at um, dementia diagnoses, and then the psychologist would help the family or the patient work through. Gotcha, gotcha. And so the psychiatrist can actually prescribe medication directly, whereas the psychologist would have to work through a physician to prescribe any kind of medication, whether that's for memory issues or mental or other mental or mental health issues. Yes, that's correct. Right. Okay. 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 And then we also have this whole specialty of legal people, of of attorneys, um, and, and this whole body of DNA, POA, POA financial, POA healthcare, <laughs> living will, last will and testament, you know, and more alphabet soup stuff. Uh, Jill, you want to take a stab at kind of unpacking all of that? Oh, we do have a lot more acronyms here, don't we? Um, so let's start with DNR, do not resuscitate. Um, a do not resuscitate order is a legally binding order signed by a physician at a patient's request. Its purpose is to let medical professionals know that you do not want to be resuscitated if you suddenly go into cardiac arrest or stop breathing. In other words, if your heart stops or you can't breathe, um, medical staff will let you die naturally instead of starting CPR, another acronym, which stands for cardiopulmonary um, resuscitation. You um, may also hear the more updated term, which is DNAR, which stands for do not attempt to resuscitate, just a slight, slight difference there. Um, POA. POA stands for power of attorney. This is legal authorization that gives a designated person the power to act for another. It's used most frequently if a person is temporarily or permanently ill or disabled and cannot act for themselves. Um, you can have a um, healthcare power of attorney or sometimes uh, known as HCPA. And that's used if you want someone else to have the power to make health-related decisions on your behalf. Um, it generally outlines your cons consent to give another person those powers in the event of an unfortunate medical condition. And the POA for healthcare is then legally bound to oversee medical care decisions on your behalf. POA can also be financial. Um, this document allows someone else to manage your business and financial affairs, such as doing your taxes, um, filing tax returns, signing checks, depositing your social security checks, managing your investments. And um, you would have this in the event that you would become uh, unable to understand or make decisions. To the extent of what the agreement spells out as the POA's responsibilities, that person has to carry out your wishes to the best of their ability. And just note that POAs vary from state to state, but all states accept some, some version of it. Another common term would be the a living will. 
And um, a living will is a written legal document that spells out medical treatments you would and would not want to be used to keep you alive, as well as your preferences for other medical decisions, such as pain management or um, being an organ donor. Living wills guide choices for doctors and caregivers if you're terminally ill, seriously injured, in a coma, uh, in late stages of dementia, or near end of life. And then in addition to a living will, you have um, your last will and testament. And your last will and testament is also a legal document that expresses your wishes as to how your property is to be distributed after your death and who will be the guardian of your minor children, if appropriate. It also lists who you want to manage the property until its final uh, distribution. So the difference between a living will and your last will and testament is the time when it's ex executed. Um, a living will and, or a last will and testament takes um, legal effect upon death and a living will on the other hand, uh, gives instructions to your family and doctors about what medical treatment you do or don't want should you become incapacitated. So that's done while you're still living. And that that all fits with all this medical stuff. Um, Vince, talk about who should be doing this kind of, you know, helping people with POAs and all of this, all of these decisions and forms. Okay, so so whenever we talk about attorneys, that can be um, very daunting, probably even more so than doctors. But there are a lot of legal issues that come up. Um, an elder law attorney is the person who specializes in all the things that Jill just talked about, like the healthcare power of attorneys, the financial power of attorneys. Um, even though you can get some of this stuff off the internet and fill it out yourself and then record it at the county offices, our suggestion would be that you have an elder law attorney that can look at this in its entirety. You can look at trusts or long-term financial plans for maybe where you want that money to go after you've died. Uh, last will and testament. Something else you want to look at is having these, these things in place, particularly if a loved one has just received a dementia diagnosis, but still might be very functional, you want to have all that in place so that you don't end up going into a courtroom and asking for guardianship and not really knowing what all the plans were from the individual. So you have, you have car crash attorneys, you have corporate attorneys, you have attorneys for all these things. An elder law attorney is the one that you need to look up to help you guard your finances as you age and put things into place as far as your, your living wills. Yeah, an elder law attorney simply is going to have more information um, about all of the different issues and forms and, and what can happen. Um, and so help help you put in place what um, 
help you put in place all of the all of the forms and all the legal documents so that everything is ready, regardless, um, regardless of what the future holds. I want to say one more thing, and I know we are getting very short on time, but in North Carolina, I and I think this is becoming more and more prevalent throughout the nation. Uh, North Carolina has what is called a most form uh, medical orders of scope of treatment. Um, and what that does, Jill had talked about um, um, the DNR and, and those kinds of documents. But what the most form does in North Carolina is to be very, very specific. You know, if you if if you are in this particular situation, how do you want us to respond? How do you want emergency folk to to respond? Um, and what I what I have found is that when people go into the hospital, sometimes uh, the social worker in particular will ask them about uh, about those details. But that is a form that you work with your physician to complete. Uh, the physician has that. I frankly thought that an elder law attorney would have it only to find that they didn't, that I had to go to my doctor to get that form. So I wanted to just put that plug in. And Jill, do you all have something similar in Pennsylvania, don't you? Yes, we do. It's called POLST, P-O-L-S-T. And um, it's it sounds exactly the same as what you're talking about or, or very, very similar. Uh, so, where it's a, it's a form you fill out with your doctor. And so again, it, you know, you may be listening from North Carolina or Pennsylvania or somewhere else, but um, but I would encourage you to become very familiar with that form and to, to make sure that you and your loved ones have that taken care of. And that very honestly, anybody at any age can can need that. And it's just extremely helpful. That way your loved ones know exactly what your wishes are. Goodness gracious, we have gone through the alphabet and back again, I think. Uh, this has been some great information and a lot of it. Uh, there are so many other parts of the alphabet soup. Uh, you know, we have all kinds of stuff about dementia and other uh, conditions that um, that can occur, and we we'll do all of those with, with some different uh, some different podcasts. Um, but it really is like alphabet soup, just trying to understand options and differences. But as we have said over and over, it is extremely helpful, extremely valuable to just be aware of these. Uh, of these forms and procedures and practices and all of this, just to know what the options are. Um, it definitely is that time that uh, this is definitely one of those times that knowing this and being aware of it and having things in place before they are needed is extremely beneficial. So Jill and Vince, thank you very much for your help with all of this. And thank you to, the, to those of you who are listening to this podcast. We hope the information will be, help, will be helpful in your being able to speak, as I call it, elder, elder care ease. Um, hopefully this will help, help you in your journey with your loved ones. 
Um, If you know of others you believe would benefit from this podcast, please do share it with them. We also, before we end, we also want to to thank Pace at Home in Hickory, North Carolina, who is our sponsor for this and all of our ACAP podcasts. We are indeed grateful for their support. This program is part of the Mesh Network of online shows and podcasts. You may find more of our Caregiver Community podcasts or on any of the platforms where you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, www.acapcommunity.org. While you're on our site, we hope you will take a few minutes to learn more about ACAP, our educational programs, and our local chapters like those that Jill and Vince represent. And if there are other topics you would like for us to address as a podcast, please do let us know. As we say so often in ACAP, regardless of our background, our education, our career, or anything else, when it's our mother, our father, our loved one who needs help, caring for them and advocating for that person become very personal and extremely important. So please care well for your loved ones, but also please remember to take care of you. Stay well. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.